0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. This week on Meet and Three, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today.
2: And they were gonna run a contest and try and develop
0: what they would call the chicken of tomorrow.
1: We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy.
0: The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for.
1: And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms.
2: Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do.
1: Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Radio Today I'm in studio with Fatima Khawaja. Raised in Lahore, Pakistan, Fatima moved to the United States for college and received a scholarship to study at the Culinary Institute of America in San Antonio. She has cooked in a wide range of restaurants including Bouchon Bakery, Cosme, and Demaria in New York. She now works as a private chef and is rediscovering the cuisine of her native Pakistan. Welcome to the show, Fatima.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Thanks for being here. Um, well, let's just dive right in. So were you were you born in Pakistan or somewhere else?
4: So I was born in the Middle East. I was born in the UAE, oh. in Abu Dhabi. Um, my parents were out there for like 15 years. Um, what were they doing there? So my dad uh, was banking, and my mom was raising a family. Yeah. I'm the youngest of four. And um, my dad ended up... Uh, leaving banking and entering politics in Pakistan mm-hmm. and so we moved back when I was just one and and then I was raised in Pakistan. So I'm
3: sure you have no memory of what zero. Was like...
4: I mean my siblings do and of course my parents feel like um, it was still pretty recent. When they go back it's all very familiar to them, but for me it's Pakistan is all I know.
3: Yeah. What was your life like in Pakistan?
4: Um For me, I felt like it was really simple. I do know that I um, represent a pretty small percentage of Pakistan, um, had access to some of the best education. Um, I led a pretty sheltered life, Um, went to an all-girls private school there and uh, studied food there and just kind of, you know, grew up a kind of a, a regular life that I feel like the people that I grew up with had. Um, the I thought families. it was interesting that you said you studied uh, f- food and nutrition. Yeah, was that was that in high school? So that was in high school. Um, so the education that I had, like I mentioned before, was British, and um, they offer different courses and different classes that you can take. And one of them was food nutrition that you had to take um, before ninth grade. And then when you enter ninth grade, you can kind of uh, choose your own subjects, and it chose that. I guess it kind of had struck a chord with me. Um, And then I ended up taking it for three years and took um, my Cambridge board exams in food nutrition. That was one of the subjects. Hmm. I took it super seriously. I mean, that's so interesting because I went to school. I did
3: my uh, master's studying food studies here. Mm -hmm. And that was a few years ago. And I feel like even now when I tell people I did that, they're like, that's a, that's a, degree. Like people do that. Right. And I think only now, like, you know, even with food on television and all the different shows, there's such like an awareness and interest in food that there wasn't even like 10 years ago.
4: Totally. I mean, I didn't, I always say when I entered the food world and when I was studying food, when I was, you know, 16, 14, 15 years old, um, food was not like, trendy food right. was not like cool. I was doing it because I loved it and because I it was, I felt like I was good at it and it had sparked a passion and I was interested in it. And so I just I kept pursuing it. And then, I, how
3: did you know at such a young age that food was something that you could be interested in beyond like,
4: I'm hungry right now, like, right. let me put
3: this in my mouth?
4: So it's actually, um, kind of funny my cousin I have a lot of family in the States and one of my cousins um, who was born in Chicago and raised sorry born in Singapore and raised in Singapore but um, lived quite some time in Chicago in her adult life ended up going uh, to Johnston Wales in Rhode Island and did her baking and pastry there and that was kind of my first um, that was like my first experience like knowing that you could study this professionally and this could be something bigger than I'm just hungry and I know how to cook. Um, so when the time came for me to apply for colleges, my dad asked me what I wanted to do and I was like, I wonder if I can keep pursuing food somehow. And he was super, super supportive, which um, was unusual at the time, yeah. you know, to, to go down such an un, like a non-traditional path. And I applied to culinary schools and I applied to culinary schools all over the U.S. and my first choice was... The Culinary Institute of America in New York, and that was one of the last colleges I heard from, and I got in, and the rest is kind of history. And I, it's crazy. I never thought of doing anything else. So, um, I think from just a young time, like knowing that this could become something more, I just kept kind of pushing at it. Um, Did your parents cook? My par- my my mother does. My mother's an excellent cook. Um, like with no professional training, like she's probably better than me. She's so, so good. And I grew up with her cooking and her baking.
3: What are some of the dishes that you remember eating when you were growing up?
4: Um, one dish that I actually wrote my college like application essay on um, was something called kathai chicken, which was like a tomato. It's basically like a very kind of gravyish, ish um, not not-so-loose chicken stew but it's very quickly quickly kind of almost stir-fried it's not a stew it's kind of stir-fried and then it's served with rice um, and my mom just made it really different and i just remember coming back from school and that was some of the most common things but that was one of the most common things that she would make for us and i just remember coming back from school and like smelling that and knowing that that's what she made um and it was i think it was like a sensory memory for me. Um, And I've always tried to recreate it, but I don't think anyone can make it as well as she does.
3: (laughs) When you came to the U.S. for school, um, I mean, I know you had uh, a British education when you were in Pakistan, but what was the experience like of coming to the United States and,
4: you know, experiencing a totally different way of life here? I think it was big time culture shock being here by myself especially you were in Texas right so I moved to New York I moved to New York and I was in New York for three years and then I moved to Texas after I graduated from my bachelor's and then I moved um, to Texas to San Antonio for a year after that but I moved to New York and I had visited a few times but by a few I mean like maybe three times in my whole life and then all of a sudden I was packing everything up and moving here when I was 18 and I just remember my parents dropping me off and, and saying goodbye to them in the parking lot. And when they drove away, it was like, dun-dun-dun. It's like, real. Like, the, I, did I really do this to myself? <laughs> like, no take now. Like, this is happening. Yeah, because they were going back to Pakistan. Yeah. It was like, oh, maybe we'll see you next weekend if you're not too busy with, like, school stuff. But otherwise, you know, see you in Pakistan in a few months. Because wow. I was going to visit home. Um, And it was really... Surreal. I'm just, I feel like I kind of acclimated pretty quickly, and I feel like I'm lucky that way. Um, I made some really great friends who really kind of educated me on, like, American culture and American society and, like, what is acceptable, what is not, like, what is the norm, like, things like that. I think that I couldn't, I couldn't have done it if I wasn't, you know, good at making friends or, you know, kind of friendly.
3: yeah. What did you eat when you came here? Were, I mean, were you ever, like, craving Pakistani food, and was
4: there ever anywhere to go? Um, so, actually, my elder sister was already living in New York. She was married. Um, she lived on the Upper West Side. And so, that was my haven. That was, like, my home away from home, you know, g- going to see her over the weekends and getting, like, my Pakistani dose, my my visit that I needed to kind of reconnect, Um so she kind of prevented a lot of homesickness and a lot of like missing that food but I mean in college I was I was in culinary school so I can't complain about the things that I ate and a lot of people that I was friends with were just fantastic cooks right out of the gate and so making fresh pasta at my friend's house and making you know roast chickens and Making turkey when we were 19 years old, like for Thanksgiving, just really, really excellent meals. Um, and even at school, um, all the kitchens and all the food is is done by the students. Um, and so you can kind of walk into any of the classes and and have whichever cuisine you want. And I mean, I talk about, especially I remember when I when I was in college and talked to my other friends from Pakistan who were also studying in the States and telling them what I was eating in comparison to what my friends were eating. And I knew I had it
3: <laughs> really well. Yeah. I mean, most college students are eating like ramen, out, you know, out of a paper <laughs> cup.
4: And- I did that for sure. <laughs> I did that too for like late night kind of thing. But I mean, my regular like cafeteria meals were really, really like high end. Mine and- were not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
3: envy you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was a vegan in college. Too, oh, really? Was, I, I don't know what I was doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us about how you started to work in
4: restaurants and what kind of places uh, you found yourself. So um, let's see. So coming out of CIA, I wasn't. Really sure when I graduated from New York, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I actually have a very close friend who like convinced me to move to Texas with her to take the scholarship and, and go study Latin American food. Um, so we moved out there together. And oh, so
3: you, you spent a year to kind of immerse in Latin American food? Yeah.
4: So the San Antonio campus is, is considered kind of like a Latin American campus oh. because it's in San Antonio and a lot of people kind of, um, a lot of like the programs are focused around that. Um, Less now, I think, more when I was there. Because the program that I did doesn't even exist anymore in San Antonio. Um, But I moved out there. And then when I finished that, um, I moved back to Pakistan for a few months. And I actually was going to just settle in Pakistan. I had an interview with Unilever, which is like a big corporate corporate company. And I was going to go work for them. And then I ended up uh, moving back to the U.S. And... My first kind of like big job was Bouchon. And I think I took Bouchon because it was Thomas Keller and because it was walking distance. Um, Both great reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, that was like kind of my first real difficult uh, like job. I had worked at Union Square Cafe when I was a student at CIA. But I was a student. It was only for a few months. I mean that was a that was a big culture shock. If you're going to talk about culture shock, that was like being 19 and for the first time working in an American restaurant. It was it was very eye-opening. And then joining Bouchon, it was completely different because it was, you know, what it was, it was French. It was very very high-end and very very high standards and super super fancy. And so working there was was really really tough. It was incredibly long hours and and early mornings and barely any breaks. And it was kind of a, a, something I had to do to figure out what I didn't want to do. Um, and then I left Bouchon. It's kind of like dating. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> kind of is. And um, so, like, working with Bouchon was fantastic. I think I learned a lot of really, really good skills and habits from there that I still have. Um, And then it was, and then after that, I actually became a cheesemonger, which Mm. was so random, but (laughs) so kind of necessary, because I feel like when you enter into restaurants, it's like one restaurant after another. And then it's kind of nice to realize that there's something else you can do in the food industry that's not... That's not restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked as a cheesemonger, but I was actually waiting for Cosme to open. I'd been recruited by a friend who helped open Cosme, and I was basically waiting for it to open, and it the date had keep getting pushed back. So I was working in Chelsea Market as a cheesemonger, and then I ended up at Cosme. And I was there at Cosme for a while. I think that was a really formative time where I was old enough to kind of be the cook that I wanted to be and kind of rise the ranks and and make excellent food and be proud of where I was working and I The food
3: at Cosme, I mean, for anyone who hasn't been there, it's one of the best Mexican restaurants in the United States. Absolutely. I mean it's and it has another it has a sister restaurant called Atla and both times both every time I go to either of them I am blown away by the creativity, um, the the flavors. I mean, it's just
4: it's just like a cerebral experience every time you eat there. I think that it's one of the best best restaurants in the U.S. Like, I think that it's Mexican and it's doing something that's uniquely unique to that. Mm-hmm. But also, this just aside from that, because yeah, if you just look definitely. at that area that Cosme is in, and you look at all those fantastic restaurants there, like. Cosme is up there with all of those restaurants, and even now, when when I meet people and they're like, "Oh, you have worked at Cosme," or someone will introduce me as like she used to work there, and I ask them if they've been and they haven't, I'm like, "You must go." It's one of the yeah. Th- if you haven't been, you need to go. I mean, I go to Attila because it's a bit more affordable, right? Right, right, affordable.
3: right. Um, but it's it's absolutely one of my favorite restaurants yeah. that I've ever been to. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And I and I try to go there. It's, you know, any opportunity to go, yeah, I'm
4: there. It's just so good and so I was there and I was super, super proud of being there. And I'm still proud that I was there because I helped open it. And so I feel like I'm still very invested in the success of, of these restaurants and the ones that are coming up and the ones that have opened after Cosme. Um, and then after Cosme, I did a couple of, I think I was still trying, I was trying to find my way after that. And I ended up at De Maria, which brought me to a, my path kind of changed in the food that I was doing. Um, and I met Camille Becerra, who's become a friend and who's become, you know, someone so different than what I'd been doing before. And I'm still working with her, and I was her sous chef at De Maria. And and it just kind of helped me grow and kind of round out and figure out what kind of food I wanted to do for myself and what my identity is, which I think I'm still figuring out. Um, but it was a really good place to kind of end my restaurant um my restaurant experiences. Yeah.
3: Well let's talk about what you just said. I mean, you are doing your own thing now, which mm-hmm. means you're doing more working as a private <laughs> chef and right. doing more events. Um, but I mean, you also mentioned to me when we were initially talking about this that you are connecting more with your what it means for you to be Pakistani and that yeah. identity and that part of who you are and where you've come from and how you're able to connect with that through the food you're cooking. Absolutely. How are you reconnecting with with your Pakistani identity through you know now that you're on your own and you don't you're not restricted to like working in any restaurant and you yeah. can really play and like
4: have the freedom to do whatever you want in the so, kitchen. So. I've, like we, I was telling you before, I didn't really, I still don't think that I am 100% comfortable with Pakistani food. It's not something I studied and it's not something I cooked when I was younger. And so I'm now starting to learn it, whether that be from my aunts, whether that be from a friend, whether that be from my sisters, whether that be from my mother, whether that be from online. And I'm just getting, starting to teach myself and learn from other people and getting familiar with the ingredients and with what it means when you talk about like regional Pakistani food, and when you talk about Pakistani food in general, because it's all, um, it's all really fluid and there's so many variables, like any sort of, um, old cuisines and it all depends on who you're talking to, whose family you're you're talking to which dining table you're sitting at. But were you not cooking when you were growing up? I mean, even I, was though- cooking, mm-hmm. I was cooking, but um, I was cooking like British food. Oh, I was right. cooking like British food. I was baking. There was a couple of things thrown in there for like, you know, good Even measure. though you ate more traditional Pakistani food at home? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. my mom, we de- I definitely grew up eating Pakistani food, but my mom definitely cooked, you know, European food. And what we say in Urdu is like, like food that's not, That's basically not Pakistani or, like, South Asian or from the subcontinent. But I never was really... I was so focused on, like, food nutrition and, like, what I was learning in school that I wasn't really looking around me, Mm -hmm. which I almost regret because I wish that, like, while I was living at home, I could have been learning all of these things from my family and, like, being in Pakistan. So so, was that a conscious choice? Do you think? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I think it was just. I think I was just really focused on doing really well in this one class, and and like reading the recipe books that were around me that were not Pakistani, and absorbing that, and not really trying to understand like how my mom made this like super traditional Pakistani dish. It just wasn't. I think I almost took advantage of it. It was was just too close. It was. I wasn't interested in how we make the goat so tender, right? mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in why this stew tastes different than the one my aunt makes in the south of Pakistan. Like, why is it, is it, I was just not interested. And now that's sometimes, like, the first thing I think of when I think about, like, what is Pakistani to me and what is, like, Pakistani food. It's all of those, like, variables that I'm I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, I just wonder if that
3: just plays into, like, the general sort of way food is presented, like, how, you know, in order to be, like, a high-end restaurant or considered, like, more haute cuisine, right. it's, it's always Western food. Like, it's always yeah. European food, it's yeah. always French food, it's always Italian food. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an expectation you go out to eat at a fancy restaurant, it's going to be, you know, that style of food. And only now, I think, are there more Mexican restaurants and right. Middle Eastern restaurants that... Um, are kind of changing that conversation. And I wonder if you, and just because of like the type of school that you went to, or just the way food was presented to you, that you, that you absorbed that sort of um, just thought system about, you know, the kind of food that you were interested in and what you wanted to go study.
4: I think when you look at at studying food professionally, you're looking at Europe, you're looking at yeah. French training, you're looking at, Italian you're looking at the mediterranean it's kind of where cuisine comes from and so even when i was in school in lahore we were doing we were doing european food that was like british food it was dictated by what um you know the british education system had kind of wanted us to be learning um and that was kind of what you were tested on also yeah. and so there wasn't A ton of room of for making chapli kebabs, which are super regional to the north of Pakistan. It just wasn't a thing, and it's almost you know now that I'm talking about it, I think about it. I'm like, it's almost kind of tragic that we didn't, that we weren't spending more time and just learning what was available to us right there. Because now I go back and I'm like, wow, like this is like how do they even make? I was joking with my mom. I was home just last month about how I want to work at, like, the local barbecue joint. Mm and She was like, are you crazy? Like, why would you want to go work there? I'm like, because how do they make these, like, perfect (laughs) kebabs? And how is their chicken so tender? And how do they make sure the chicken just doesn't fall off the skewer? Like, it's all, like, skill and technique that you take advantage of and you don't realize. Yeah, and it's also
3: what's available and what's, you know, indigenous
4: to the region and what's seasonal and all those things
3: matter. Yeah,
4: totally. And so every time I go back, I'm always trying to, like – take a picture I'm always trying to absorb as much as I can I'm always eating out and talking to people because now food like I said before is trending it's trendy and even in Pakistan so people even in Pakistan are talking about food which they do all the time anyway but now it's now people are really interested on like the perfect lentils and now people Mm -hmm. are interested in like where why this is different and like what is like native to the north and you know, which is a place that a lot of people don't visit, and why is it different? And oh, is it influenced by China? Like, how interesting! Like, all of these things are now, um, are now part of the conversation. And there's pride involved too. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that with the interest
3: comes like a self ownership and like, absolutely an acknowledgement that the food that we've been cooking ourselves is yeah. It's, there's a lot of skill behind it. Absolutely. Yeah.
4: But you were talking before about like restaurants and cuisines in restaurants mm-hmm. and how they've always been European and it's only been in like the past kind of like decade and generation where we're more like street food is like entering into right restaurants. I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a lot of super high end Indian restaurants even in the US, you know, there's there is now a sort of an attempt happening at it. Um, there's an attempt that's going on, but, I mean, I when people always ask me, like, where is the best Pakistani place to go eat? And like, I make some suggestions, but with hesitations and with disclaimers of this is not... Exactly what you would eat at like Yeah, like my house. At my house. Yeah. Exactly, right? <laughs> or like my sister's house. Yeah. Or like wait until my mom visits. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then you'll have a feast. And and so it's just interesting how like things are changing. Things are definitely changing. And yeah. there's room for that Pakistani restaurant. And there's room for, you know, the cookbooks that we were talking about before that are Pakistani. Um Because subcontinent cooking, like cooking from that area is definitely, it's always been there and people have been interested. Um, I think there's just more room for like other voices now and there's people who are looking in that direction or like looking um, looking for an education even from like what is what is the food from there? And how are Pakistani and Indian cuisine different from each other? That's a question I get all the time. Yeah. We talked about that on the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's take a quick break,
3: here from our commercial, and then keep talking. Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award winning Alpine style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high quality, great tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Schwa was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Are you
2: enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Hey, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network.org. This is Food Without Borders. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and we've been talking to our guest today, Fatima Kamaja. Um, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, I just want to read something that you actually wrote me, uh, when we started emailing about you coming on the show, if that's okay. Sure. Just to kind of switch gears a little bit. Um, you wrote, when Muslims were targeted during the ban, it felt like for the first time that I didn't belong in the U S that my American born Pakistani fiance will never understand me and that I will forever be separated from my family who still lives in Pakistan or that I will have to return to my city of Lahore and give up everything
4: that I have built here.
3: Do you still feel like
4: that? I think um, less. I mean, A, because there's no, like, m- legit Muslim ban. Right. But when that was first being floated around and when that was, like, first happening, it was so jarring. Yeah. And it was so, like, even thinking about it now, is just like so overwhelming to think about that that could be something that's possible and you know just waiting for pakistan to get on that list and for waiting for all of these restrictions to to come up and for life to just get harder it was it was really hard to wrap your head around that and i feel like i feel that way less now because some time has passed and because we've gotten to see what politics are coming out of the U S. And so when you put the Muslim ban in perspective to that, you're like, Oh, that was a, like a, another blimp. And that was, it a, was a day in the news. It was like it, a headline. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um To put it very, every nice day way. is a fresh hell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you kind of see that. And then you're kind of like, you can take a deep breath and be like, there are people who are fighting for it. There are people whose voices will be heard. There are people who don't agree with this. Like, this is happening, but it doesn't need... It doesn't need to be, like, the end of the story, you know? And so I feel like talking about it and and staying up-to-date about it and seeing other people's reactions, seeing other minority groups kind of it may kind of helps you get, helps you wrap your head around it. Like
3: function. I mean, yeah. really, it was, really, it was paralyzed. I mean, it, I'm not going to pretend like it, you know, impacted me in the
4: same way it impacted you, but it was, it was a paralyzing feeling. It was visceral. I mean, it was a paralyzing fear. Yeah. Because I have, you know, I have some family members who, um, are not citizens who have their green card. Um, I have family members who don't even have green cards and, come and go on visas and so for it to all of a sudden for this band to be put on it's almost as if you're just separating us you know families being ripped apart which is kind of scary that I'm saying that because that has happened to more than just one ethnicity and more more than just Muslims um and so I think that it was important then to to also just talk about it and to voice your fears and to kind of do the best that you can. I mean, I didn't, like, I remember talking to my sister about it and I remember um, talking to my fiancé about it and it's just a really interesting to see, like, all the different perspectives on something like this also because my fiancé at the time, now husband, he was born and raised in the U.S., and so he was born an American, and his parents have been living in the U.S. for, you know, 35 plus years, and my parents are in Pakistan. And so it was really interesting to just, and my, and my sister-in-law works um, in politics, and so it was really, really interesting and educational and important to talk about these things and to kind of share your views and share what you're feeling and and have it all out because at the end of the day you're not alone and whatever might happen you you won't be by yourself and it's and it's really important because you know when 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 Trump was elected I was I was in restaurants and I think that was a really good time to be in restaurants because mm-hmm. it reminds you of the fact that you're not alone, you're not the only Muslim, you're not the only brown girl, you're not the only person of color, you're not the only, like, young immigrant trying to make something, like, you know, there's times where I've been in kitchens where there's no, like, Native American, like, someone from America, everyone's an immigrant. Everyone's an immigrant, yeah. And you're just kind of like, this is, this is, like, a beacon of, this is this is this is america yeah and so that's like a really really good feeling yeah. when when you speak to people and they have accents and you speak to people and you know they're still trying to figure out their immigration status and you or you speak to people who just came here for a different kind of life for themselves whether that be better or worse and and I think that that's really, really important to kind of go through something like the Muslim ban.
3: Yeah, and um, it sounds like, I mean, from what you wrote to me after that, that you, it kind of pushed you to sort of embrace your Pakistani identity even more. Right. Because, you know, we can hear you, you don't you don't necessarily sound like you're someone from Pakistan. You right. don't necessarily even look like you're someone from Pakistan. So it sort of pushed you to kind of claim that identity um,
4: in a more present way. Absolutely. I think that, I never really shied away from being Pakistani. I think there were times where I was like, it doesn't need to be shouted from the rooftops, really, that I'm from Pakistan. But I was never like, people ask me where I'm from. And unless you're someone who's like badgering me, you know, who was being like, so where are you from? And they're trying to make conversation like outside, you know, on the street. I will always really proudly be like, I'm from Pakistan. Also because it's a conversation starter. Um, And then also just to bake the stereotype. I think it's really, really important to to present different faces, um, different faces of Pakistan and where you're from. And I was just telling my husband before I came here, I was in Pakistan and they thought I was a foreigner there. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they asked me, they're like, are you, are you a foreigner? I'm like, no. They're like, are you sure? <laughs> I'm like, I'm positive. I mean, do you want to see my ID? And they're like, no, like, it's fine. Like you can be on your way. Like, what is that? It just, it's really funny. But I think that through all of this, it's just, it is, um, it made me stronger and more proud And and it's kind of created its own kind of community of like immigrants and and people who who want to fight for basic rights and who wanna who wanna band together and this industry is is the industry for that.
3: Yeah, that's a good kind of band. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, Well, I just want to close out and read one more thing that you wrote me because I just loved it when you you were talking about Pakistan. You said, you know, just trying to change people's perceptions or just yeah. explain where you come from. You said, we are a country filled with love, kindness, hospitality, and rice as far as the eye can see and so much more. Yeah. And you said in the commercial break that, you know, maybe you were going to open, like, the, the
4: first high-end Pakistani restaurant in New York and I just think that's a great idea. I that would be a feat in itself. I can not wait for like the Pakistani to show up at the door and be like, you're doing it wrong. Like, that's what would happen. I'm,
3: well, right. We were just saying how, you know, it's really just started to happen with Indian cuisine. Right. But it hasn't quite right. made its way yet right. to
4: Pakistani. And I think it will. One day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can see it. I mean, it was really exciting what we were talking about before about um, your previous host and your previous guest, Houser, and a, yeah, yeah, and Gosar and Gossard about her cookbook. Like, Pakistani cookbooks is a is a novelty. Like, that's not right that common. And so when you start to th- see things like that, you're like, we need all we can get. We need the good yeah, publicity. Well, I think it we
3: speaks need... to that curiosity that people, you know, they're interested in street food and they want to start figuring out, you know, where where can I go to a restaurant and eat food like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. And you're, you know, you're the perfect kind of <laughs> emissary for that. Right. Possibly. I try. Um, well, tell us where we can, you know, keep up with what you're working on and follow you
4: on social media. Um, so I do want to start working on a website since I've been freelancing and I'm on my own. Um, but I did start an Instagram. It's Fati Eats, F A T I. Eats, E A T S, which is just kind of a play on the word, and play on words. And yeah. I just post mostly food that I make, whether that be for myself or whether that be for clients or events. Um, and I'm just trying to grow. I'm just. Well, trying what to if f- we wanted to hire you to to cater an event? Well, you can reach me there on Instagram. I think I have my email up. I also created a Facebook page by the same name, um, so you can definitely reach me out. Uh, reach out to me there. And uh, more to come.
3: Yeah, great. Well, Fatima, thank you so much of for course. coming thank on the show. Thank you so much. It was, you know, fabulous to talk to you. And I wish we could just keep talking, and yeah. I'm sure we will. <laughs> and thank you everyone for tuning in. Find us again next week on HeritageRadioNetwork.org Wednesdays at 6 p.m. ET, and check us out on iTunes and Stitcher and
2: Spotify.